Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Soshing with Suntwe. If you uh, haven't been with us before, this is a show where we take ordinary people who have made extraordinary choices and explore how they've created extraordinary lives for themselves, because we don't believe in anybody being extraordinary. We believe that everybody's the same and everybody's ordinary, but you know, some people just make extraordinary choices. Um, if you haven't been with me before, just give me a second. I'm going to do a bit of shares, get the 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 whole ball rolling and try and get as many of you on here as possible so that we can all see what's going on. If you're already with us, uh, then please, please drop a comment. Let us know where you're watching from. Say hi. Just know that this is an interactive show. It's not a, it's not just between uh, myself and the guest. It's meant for everybody to jump on board and get uh, involved in the conversation. So drop your comments, drop your questions. I can see Val Chikali, our good old uh, faithful, and Abby Dent are with us already. Welcome, guys. Thank you for coming and being so loyal to the show every week. It means a hell of a lot. Um, this happens every week. Uh, we're on episode 29 today, so we've done 29 episodes this year, which is uh, quite a massive commitment for me. And uh, I will be closing down the show next week at the 30th episode. So this season will have 30 episodes and that's what I'm closing down on for this year. Um, I will keep you all updated. If you join the group on Facebook, Soshing with Suntwe, you'll be able to see uh, all the details and what the new season is going to uh, hold for us. Uh, next week's show is going to be a panel show where we've got an interesting discussion um, about the whew, I don't know how to I haven't phrased it quite correctly yet, but I will. It's uh, going to be about um, the the pressure males put on themselves to provide and be the provider in society, and whether it's warranted or not, and whether that pressure is actually supposed to be there. So we've got a good panel up for that, and uh, should be a good discussion. Um, so yeah, if you can be there next week to throw in your input and let us know what's going on, we'll be stoked to have you there. But without further ado, I'd like to. In, uh, welcome my guest today, Sharon Stead from the Amalinda Collection. Uh, we're so stoked to have you, Sharon, and uh, it's been a long time. I've known Sharon for a few years now, and uh, yeah, always a pleasure. So welcome. Hey, Paul. Thank you. Um, it's actually my pleasure to be here, and even though I'm number 29th on your list, um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I asked you a long time ago. <laughs> I still feel a lot of privilege for being here, given that you are a, a, a pretty much a trailblazer in our industry. Um, <laughs> you are. Well, that's, that's very high praise coming from you. Thank you. Um, I could, Wow, we've got quite a few people watching already, so this is great. So not to, to waste time, because we've got an hour, I know, in a conversation with you and I, an hour is a very short amount of time. So let's take it back to the beginning. Uh, you grew up on a game ranch. Tell us a little bit about your, your early years on the game ranch, what area and some of your fondest memories that you have from back there and how it shaped your, your passion for, for the industry that you're in now. Okay, how far do you want to go back? Like, I'm, I'm kind of old. But, um, <laughs> so, yeah, if I go back, um, I'll probably say that I was born Rhodesian and then became Zimbabwean when I was 12 years old. So, um my growing up years were during our like liberation struggle, and um, but being on the on the farm, I mean, it it was a, a a wild sort of upbringing. We were we were carefree. We rode horses bareback and got thrown off. But we were tough, and um, that's how my dad kind of like brought us up. But just having that that freedom and that space, you know, um, it, it was. 
it was a remarkable upbringing. I think it, it certainly did shape me, and I um, I learned a lot about bush law and and just living with wildlife and um, as well as just being a farmer's daughter. And I always take myself back to those roots that I am a farmer's daughter and um, small town girl. Where whereabouts was the farm? Um, so do you know um, the airport just north of of the airport um, Turk Mine. Yeah, it's a it's a cattle farming sort of area, and mm-hmm. so Turk Mine had a great um, community there. So our nearest neighbour was about fifty kilometres from us, um, but that was called a neighbour. So we would always congregate at like the, the clubhouse in Turk Mine over weekends and play tennis and cricket, and you know the the, the parents would would just search and uh, play bridge, and, and us kids would just be running wild. Um, yeah, so it was, it was a, a, and it was, it was 50 kilometers away from, from the nearest person. So, yeah, Turk Mine. So, so, so in the Turk Mine area, not further towards Nyati or? Yeah, before Turk Mine. So, Bembezi. Nyati, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so like Bembezi sort of. Yeah, yeah. Just over, well, it's a, it was about 30 kilometers from the Bembezi River, if you know it. Yeah. Uh, one of the very first rivers I ever kayaked was the Bembezi and flood. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Were you on a tube? No, no, in a kayak, in a proper kayak. We used to go down rivers on tubes, though, but not, you know, like on those flash flood sort of times. Yeah, because it uh, it flash flooded, and uh, Dylan Bennett and I jumped in cars, and we raced out there, and we ran the weir that then goes under the main road. Oh yeah. Yeah, and then from there all the way to uh, to the lake to the dam. So that's that's kind of dangerous because I'm like we've been stuck behind that bridge before, and the waters come over the bridge, and um, it's been pretty hectic. But I think, are you talking about the Bembezi Bridge on the Victoria Falls Road or on the Turkmine Road? Turkmine Road. Yeah, so it's that little narrow guy. Yeah, that, yeah. That one. Yeah, no, it's a that was kind of dangerous at, at certain times of the year. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's it pretty cool. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, okay. So, you said you you left school at uh, sixteen, and uh, you've been self-employed since then. So, tell us about uh, leaving school and what you did uh, straight out of school, and how your progression went from there towards towards where you are now. Uh, well, I hope my ex headmistress is not watching this tonight because <laughs> I kind of like got to 16 and did my O-levels, failed them. I think I got four O-levels and um, was like, I'm out of here and gave the school the middle finger and was like, I, you know, my growing up years, I was I was a daydreamer. I just spent my time looking out the window. I'm pretty ADHD, not ADHD, I'm pretty ADD. But um, yeah, just dreaming and, and thinking that there's got to be something more. I'm not a classroom learner. And I think, you know, that's there's a lot to be said about learning that's not, you know, without being in four walls. But um, yeah, I, I just dreamt of, I just couldn't wait to make money. I wanted to make my own money. I wanted to be independent. Um, you know, I wanted to have my own place. And um, so just leaving school, I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, and funnily enough, I've been asked to to go back to school and talk to the leavers since then, um, you know, the, the latest leavers and, and tell them, you know, what it's like and, and what to are they, their life choices that they can make. And I'm always saying, like, don't make that choice. Don't leave school at 16. You know, it was different in our time. Um, it was different in my dad's time because he also left school at that sort of age. And the world is a very different place today. So 
Um, I think, you know, leaving school at 16 was pretty um, irresponsible, but my folks, they knew they, I was a bit of a wild spirit and they couldn't keep me in and I was going to make it on my own. And I, and, and I think they kind of like they set you free. And I, I think that was one of the biggest opportunities that I had was to be set free and, and go and go and make it on your own. Um, and yeah, just my dad has never worked for anybody in his life. And I think I followed in those sort of like footsteps and um, I, I'm, I'm kind of like a control freak. I don't like to be told what to do. So I had to figure it out myself and, and I wanted to be the boss. And and I suppose that's how it all panned out. I can I can relate to most of that. I for the record, I left school uh when I was 17, 17. Also with I had four O levels as well. And <laughs> and uh I left in lower six and I ran away to Switzerland to become a snowboarding instructor. So oh. Yeah, and then after after going to Switzerland and then going to London from there and spending some time as a 17-year-old in London with no prospects, I came back home and realized I better get a bloody education, otherwise, I'm, uh, otherwise I don't have much to offer. So, <laughs> so luckily, whilst working in the family business, I decided to get myself a bit of education and, uh, and uh, got qualified in the, the chemistry field that I work in now. But it's a field that I haven't worked in for the last eight years or so, where I've been doing the tourism thing. So, so yeah, yeah fully. And back on the thing where you were saying um, being called a daydreamer when you're at school. I mean, some people call us daydreamers, other others call us visionaries. We just have to decide which one you want to listen to at the end I of the like day. That. Yeah, I think I'm a visionary then. <laughs> <laughs> I like to yeah. think I'm a visionary. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, you know, it's it, like I said, the world is a very different place today, and it's certainly not something that I would I would tell my kids to do. Um, but I know that um, I've always had the sense that I will make it happen. I will make a plan, and I'll make it happen, and I'll and I'll you know tomorrow, you know, even in our business today, like if if we're going through a slump and and, and tourism was bad at certain times in our in our um, history. It's okay, you know, I've always felt we will make a plan and we will get through this and, and tomorrow's another day. So um, there's, a, there's another opportunity out there all the time. Yeah. So tell us about your current collection the, with uh, Ivory and Amalinda. Um, there's quite a, quite a big portfolio there. So give us a little bit about each one and, uh, and tell us uh, how, you, how you got into that situation i mean like it's it's a massive achievement what you've done with all these uh with these different projects well i just want to say firstly that it's not just me i have a great team and um i would um it would be remiss of me to say it was all me um cool. but i think it started off um with amalinda as our flagship you know my, my parents had their game farm and my dad having the knowledge of you know, farmers, they can do anything. They can build anything. They can create anything. Um, and, you know, you talked about Dylan Bennett. Um, his, you know, his uncle Dave Bennett is actually my brother-in-law. And it was Dave's idea um, right in the beginning to to build Amalinda, which is in Matoba Hills, right back into the rocks to make you feel like you're living like a sand bushman all those years ago. And it was it was in 1990, and there was no other lodges uh, you could stay in in the purpose. So it was right at the cusp of the tourism industry developing in, in Zimbabwe um, after the 80s. And um, um, he, he was in business with my dad, and then um, 
my husband, Phil, being a hotelier, um, we were asked to to come and join the business. And I have no, I had, well, I don't, I don't have any um, education on, on hospitality at all. Um, but what I've learned from him was was how to deal with customers and clients and, and the whole hospitable sort of um, aspect of tourism um, and her, being a hotelier, I suppose. So we we actually worked at Amalinda for 10 years and as uh, partners with my sister and, and brother-in-law. Um, and then, of course, 2000 came and tourism just fell to its, um, onto its knees and, and completely stopped. So we had to make the decision then of how to split the company up and how to part ways because Amalinda couldn't support us all. Hmm. So so Phil and I stayed with the company and, and thought, well, this is not going to take long. You know, we didn't realize it was going to be a decade before tourism would come back. So mm. every year you're thinking, well, it's just going to be another year. Next year is going to be okay. And I think that is the fundamental thing about being a Zimbabwean is that you live in hope. And hope is, is one of those, those feelings that you, you just have. It's, a, it's an intrinsic thing inside of us that we, we, we live in hope that things are going to get better. So... Yeah, so we stayed with Amalinda and it was pretty much uh, weekend trade then. It was really quiet. And then in 2006, uh, things were certainly not better. Um, my parents had, had lost their, their, their farm due to the land acquisition. Where was land. that? Um, well, my folks lost their, their farm in 2002 um, when we our country went through that um, land redistribution process. Where, what area was the farm? Turk Mine. Oh, the t sorry. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so they lost that in, in 2002, and and we got an opportunity of taking over a, um, a lease in in Wangi. And although like tourism was still scraping along, and in fact there was no tourism, we could remember the hyperinflation years of 2006. Um, we there was like there was nothing on the shelves, there was no bread, there was nothing. We were all trading for fuel, for oil, for sugar, and we were all spending 24, 36 hours in, in fuel queues. Remember those days? Mm. So keeping the camps open at that time um, and just supplying our staff and, and the clients was tough, let alone a, a, a household. Anyway, so we we took over the a concession in Wangi, um, and that was, that was really – a vision of mine and, and, and something that really um, almost split our family because I wanted to take on, on something else when we should have just really been consolidating and just handling what we had. Mm. Um, and then my husband said, well, look, if we do this, then we need to take your parents on as partners because now they're off the farm and they can help us there. So we, we signed them up as, as our partners. And from there on, I mean, it, it just was, um, it just started to mushroom. And um, so we have Ivory Lodge in the Toba Hills, uh, uh, sorry, in Wangi National Park. And that was built by John Burton. So it was built also 30 years ago as um, these little, these tree houses, um, yeah. stilted platforms. Um, and you lived like Robinson Crusoe amongst the trees, you know, and it was it's still today like one of the, the last remaining treehouse experiences um, accommodation that we that is in, left in Zim. Um, and then 2004, of course, now after four years, um, tourism is starting to go up and um, we've dollarized and so our, our economy is stable. Um, and we had the, the financing and we that's what we've always done is we've always just plowed back all our money back into growing the business more um, 
And instead of just pocketing it and um, taking profits, we just kept pushing those profits right back into the business. And that's how we just grew it. Um, like completely owned outright family owned. So we have no investors and, and we have, it's awesome. We don't owe anything to the bank either. Um, and then my dad built um, Cooley Bush Camp, which is like seen as our premier. So Amalinda was our flagship and um, Cooley Bush Camp is, is what like our premier offering. Um, and it holds a, a really special place in all of our hearts because not since Amalinda had we built another you know, camp because um, mm. I've already built. So, so yeah, we now have, now we have um, three camps in Wangi and two in Matoba Hills. So that's amazing. Yeah. I've, I've, I stayed at uh, Amalinda with my dad and, uh, and my mom years ago. And yeah, I, it was definitely one of my dad's favorite places to, to stay local in the, in and around Bulawayo, you know, and uh, yeah, I think they went there many times after that. But uh, yeah, I, I spent one nice weekend there with them uh, when Billy Daly was there. Yeah, he's still with us. He's Is still, he still with there. Us. Yep. Yeah. And uh, twelve years now. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And then I had the privilege of uh, staying at Kulu once. Okay. I, can't I can't remember who I schmoozed to get a night to get a night there, but uh, but it must have been much. No, I don't think it was. I, I can't remember. Yeah. I might have I might have messaged you even because I was driving back from Vic Falls, but I had done something stupid like I'd gone to Vic Falls in the day and had to do something and then had to go back the same day. And I was driving yeah. back and I was just tired. And I don't know if I messaged you or Phil or somebody and I was like, I'm tired. Please can I have a bed? Yeah, I <laughs> and I do recall that. I do. Um yeah. and so Kudu for that night. Yeah, I was at Kulu for that night, and yeah. it was amazing. It was absolutely beautiful. Yeah, wow. I mean, Amalinda is very different. And if you had to ask me which was my favorite, you know, it's I always say it's like choosing which is your kid, which favorite is your, you know, which kid is your favorite. Um, and Amalinda, it's, it's I, th I think people disregard the spirituality of, of Matoba Hills and the history and the culture. And, you know, yes, it's not a big game area. And, you know, we have amazing you know rhinos that you can walk out on and, and, and track um there's those leopards that are really elusive you know they just duck down behind the rocks you can't hardly see them mm. but it's it is i mean cecil Rhodes and mazilakatsi and logan gula and all the history and the that whole footprint there it, it and it's it is it's the soul of of zimbabwe i think Matopus. yeah matopas has got a very special place in my heart and i i mean talking about those leopards I've I've spent my entire life in that area, and uh, I've seen one leopard in Matopas in my entire life. Even me. And uh, and it's supposed to have the highest concentration of leopards on the planet, or something crazy yeah. like that. Yeah, um, and at the time they, it was supposed to have the highest concentration. I think it was supposed to be one one leopard for every five kilometers. All right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I've done a Matopas heritage ride twice. Uh, yeah. And yeah, I mean that place. I love that place, and um, especially from the the point of view of the 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 heritage and the and the history, like you say, with all the cave paintings and all that. I've almost crashed a mountain bike into a rhino several times. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's a that was quite an quite an experience. But um, yeah, it's the it, like you said, trying to choose which one's uh, your favorite. I get asked all the time, "What's your favorite river that you've kayaked?" And it's like oh, there's, yeah. no, there's no favorite. They're all different. Yeah. 
but surely the Zambezi is has got to be like up there. Well, I, it's honestly, it's just too different. Like the Zambezi is so. Is, the rapids are, are manic compared to just kayaking down a, a fast river. I don't know. Well, no, no, well, it's there's different types of kayaking. So Zambezi is actually quite a forgiving, friendly type of kayaking because it's so big and and the water's so deep and the rapids are fluffy and everything. You get a nice, good beating sometimes in, here and there, but you always come out the bottom al alive. Whereas other rivers that you kayak can be really steep, really shallow. You're dropping down like waterfalls and stuff like that, and the technicality of those rivers there can be dangerous things like siphons and so so there's there can be like much bigger consequences on smaller rivers that are steeper and stuff so it just depends on on what you're doing and what type of kayaking you you like but i mean just for pure sheer fun and stress-free fun the zambezi is quite good yeah but i mean you you've lived in, and and rafted those kayak those those rapids many many times so i think you get used to it and so you kind of get a little bit blasé, but I think if you were a first timer, I think I think those those rapids are. Yeah, it's 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 always fun when a, a kayaker from uh, the UK or the states comes and spends some time, and <laughs> you see their face the first time going down the river. It's it's one of the most beautiful things, the the shock and awe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you got to have like pretty big lungs, I think, when you when you go down that river. Yeah, you learn to breathe through your bum. It's fun. <laughs> can you on your show you can talk like that yeah yeah don't worry i swear and i cuss and i do all sorts of, I, this is real this is i'm not putting on any uh any fake uh any fake pretenses for everybody what you see is what you get here um, you really get down and dirty are you not no. drinking your wine there sharon i am i am cheers <laughs> cheers i'll join you with a diet coke as we do yeah um Jim Wall's got a nice comment here. He said, uh, I'm a dreamer and visionary as well. I believe this identity means that we see beyond the immediate tangible world around us and are willing to create our own new possibilities. You're awesome, Sharon. Um, wow. Jim, is a, Jim is a past guest and a good friend of mine. He was on the show. Uh, he's been on the show in, in his own capacity as a one-on-one -on -one guest, and he's been a, a panel guest a couple of times. And I think so He was one of the previous, like the number ones, where I'm number 29. <laughs> 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 it's okay i know my breaking order nice to meet you and um yeah thanks for that i think you're absolutely right i think it's um you know people say to you how what is it that makes you a visionary or a, you know and I, I don't think it's i don't think you like you set out and, and you can't go to university to teach to learn that you know um it's uh it's a it could be a skill that you learn but i think it's also um, it's in you. I think it's either in you or not. Yeah, I think I think a lot of it comes from a childlike mind. As long as you don't, uh, if, as long as you are curious, playful, and willing to explore, that's where I, th I personally think it comes from. I think I think yeah. a lot of people force themselves to grow up too quickly and become serious about life. And I think it's that seriousness that kills that curiosity, which in turn puts you into a line of uh, narrow thinking rather than expand expansive thinking i think yeah and and i think you're absolutely right that that sense of adventure you know and i think life should be viewed as an adventure it shouldn't be seen as, as something that you are, are boxed into and, and has to be this way or that way and i think as we grow older we forget about that 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 youthful uh, enchantment of life and of of just being 
out there and doing shit. Yeah, there's a. I'm looking for a, a quickly looking for a quote here. Celebrate the childlike mind was someone clever said that. I can't remember who it was, but oh, that's nice. Yeah, celebrate the childlike mind. And if even if you go uh, biblical, which is not really my field or thing, but uh, even Jesus himself said, uh, "Be ye as little children." So. Uh, and you know what? We've got the rest of our lives to be adults. I'm serious. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think I'm like 20. You know, I don't. I don't think. I don't feel like I'm 52. I still think I'm, I'm, I'm 20 years old, and and I still have a lifetime ahead of me. But obviously, I don't. But I, I, I think it's a mindset. Adulting is overrated. Um, <laughs> totally. I want to go back. Donna Tiltman said, Paul, you should write a book on all your Africa experiences. Donna, I am actually trying to do that. I started a thing a year and a half ago called The Chronicles of Suntwe, where I've written five stories so far. And I started writing the sixth story and I got so flippant blocked. And I'm just, the, my problem is I'm a perfectionist. And the sixth story is so important to me in my heart that I am... Um, I have. I, I feel like the writing that I'm doing is not doing justice to the experience, and that I'm not selling it well enough. And that the scenery and the things I saw were so beautiful that they need to be written properly. And I don't have the skill to do it. So I, I've I've been toying with this idea a lot. I'd actually like to hear your opinions. But I was thinking of potentially doing another podcast type thing like this, where I just tell the stories because I'm much better at telling the story than writing it. The only yeah. benefit of writing it is I've got photos and video and all that kind of uh, cool multimedia evidence to go with it. So it becomes a bit better. But I will um, drop a link into the comments later of where the stories are written. So, yeah, thanks for that. But also you're a little bit ADD as well. So so to keep your focus on on, on writing and, and having having the command of the English language um, is also, you know, also kind of tough. Not that you do. You don't have a problem with that. But I'm saying that one sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love because I, I do absolutely love writing. And um, if anyone has followed my Instagram or my Facebook posts, I always I write a bunch of horseshit that goes with a with a with a photo and i say it's horseshit because it's just me sort of like um trying to order my own thoughts and get where my head's at and then i throw it out there in case it's interesting to somebody i got to i've had a few people writing inbox messages to me telling me i'm all preachy and stuff but that's not the intention i'm not preaching a belief i'm not preaching a a life system or or of any sort it's literally just me trying to get this word vomit shit in my head out and I put it out onto paper so that I can actually try and learn something from what I'm thinking. But also you mustn't be so self-critical because what you think might be boring inspires other people and you never know who it's inspiring. And that's what's important is, is just to get it out there because like like Donna says, you should write you should write this all down. This this is this isn't this is exciting. You know, you've lived a, an extraordinary life. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the, the, the thing is, my, my life, uh, part of my life purpose is that I want to inspire. If I, if I truly inspire one person to do more or be more than they were before they, they met me, read me, encountered me, just one, then I'm successful in my eyes. And that's, that's all I want to do. So you're right. You just put it out there. And if, if it's, if it, the, the, the thing is, again, it's, 
when it if it falls on the right ears, it's received with the right thing. If it falls on the right. wrong ears, it's received with the wrong thing. You can't control that, and you just have to put things out there. And if you know some will, some won't. Won't so what? Who's next? You know. Well, we were talking about that earlier. Haters, you know, there'll always be haters who'll cast shadow. Hey, so yeah, you know, there'll be so many more people that will 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 just love what you do and what you're saying. And 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 I mean, I know you've been that to my son. Even you know, you've. You've always been warm and welcoming and, and like, come on, Mitch, let's do this shit together, you know? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that's a good thing. Now you've brought up Mitch. Um, I, I read in your um, your brief little thing that you sent me earlier that uh, you had, uh, Mitch had a uh, an early health issue. Would you tell us about that and share with us the journey on that and, and how that shaped your, your lives and his life? And um, yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll hope not to tear up when I do talk about him because he is, he's a, um, he, yeah, I mean, I was 30 years old living in, in Matoba Hills and I have my second child who who I don't understand what the hell is going on. He's, he's he doesn't want to eat, he doesn't want to grow, he's, he's just vomiting all the time, he's just lying there in like semi, in and out of coma sort of thing. Anyway, I, we we got him to a hospital um, two months old in Cape Town because no one here really figured it out what was going on. And he was diagnosed with a very rare disease called, um, it's not a disease, but it's a condition called nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. Um, I'll say that slowly, nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. So it's a type of diabetes, but it's um, it's a water diabetes. So it's not sugar. So it's not sugar mellitus and, and you know, it's not um, insulin related. It's actually to do with your kidneys and the ability to absorb water. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So he is perpetually in a state of, of dehydration. And he, um, as a baby, you know, you you don't feed a baby water. You don't you ever imagine. And, and he had this low-grade nausea all the time where he was just vomiting and he wouldn't eat. So, I mean, it's such a rare condition that you know, most doctors uh, around the world will, will say, oh, yeah, I think we, we probably covered that one day, in, you know, in our seven-year thing. And, mm. and But it's, um, uh, yeah, it's a, it's, you know, you can get the central form where, where people will hurt themselves and um, hurt their pituitary glands or whatever, and um, they get the central form. But that's easy. You just, you know, like, squirt the, the hormone up your nose. Whereas Mitchell's is his it's his kidneys that don't recognize um, the hormone. So he, he just drinks this volumes of water now. But you don't survive this. My mom, it was actually while Mitchell was being diagnosed that we realized it's a hereditary disease. So my mom's twin brother died of it. Oh. Um, yeah, and that was at that time, 55 years before. So yeah. Um, so yeah, so she she never knew why he had died, and he just never grew. And I could see that in Mitchell; he he just never grew. So we were lucky that we had these um, doctors in Cape Town, and they put a, a gastrostomy into his stomach. So he was fed via computer for the first ten years of his life, and it was only at two years old did he voluntarily put any food in his mouth. So he was this little frail, headachey, crybaby. And I, I've always said, and I've talked about it in the past, that I, I had one child from heaven and Mitchell was from hell because he, <laughs> he was so difficult. And I, I even remember saying to his, his maid one day, 
um, we were driving on the way to Kariba and um, and he was just in the car and he was crying and whinging. And I just said to his mate, you know what, I'm just going to leave the both of you on the side of the road here and in these little, you know, in this Kamusha hut um, because there's certainly no way that you actually want to do life. You don't want to do life. You just want to make everybody's life uncomfortable. Um, and I think he was like three years old then. Um, so he... But yeah, so for 10 years, he had this, this gastrostomy, this pipe in his stomach, and he was fed by a computer. But now he's he's 20, nearly 22 years old, and um, he knows how to to condition himself. He knows how much water he has to drink. And there's there's always that 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 scare that he could get malaria or um, any kind of diarrhea or hydrate, dehydrating situation. And then he's it's pretty serious when he does. Well, that's amazing. But um, for those of you watching, I, I know Mitch relatively well. And this is literally news to me that I'm learning today. I had no idea about any of this. Um, if, you met, if you met him, you, you, would, you would never say. It's like there was never anything wrong. Yeah. And I mean, kids don't survive this disease. They, they don't. And so he's a miracle child. And what he's taught me um, about resilience and, and the will to live has 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 stayed with me forever you know and it will it'll always stay with me and his compassion for people he's got an, an incredible compassion you know he just sees a, a beggar on the side of the road or you know he's always giving and, and uplifting and wanting to help people i think it's it's just you know he's he's survived he's he's you know he's he's out there and and he wants to help others which is great that's amazing what a good what a good boy i i love that kid anyway <laughs> But uh, we've got a comment here from Dawn Halstead. Absolutely wonderful to have you, Dawn. It's been a long time since we chatted. We must catch up soon. Um, the magic here is that we are visitors, but the special ones share. They give unconditionally and not defined by society. You both have the passion power. When you believe, you make it happen. Naturally, on a final note, we are all vulnerable. We are all gifted. The difference is what you do with it. Absolutely. Oh. That's that. That goes full circle back to the beginning where I was saying there's no extraordinary people, just ordinary people that make extraordinary decisions. And everybody's got the tools and the, and the ability. It's just whether or not you decide to, to push yourself in that direction or not. Yeah, I think we, we all have that. As Dawn says, it's, it's just um, how, you, how you present it and bring it out and, and explore it. So uh, there's another... Another one, Donna Tipler being supportive here. Good. Donna's, Donna watches often, and it's uh, great to have you again. Thanks for coming, Donna. Still got to have you on at some point. I want to chat to you about your career and that, so please remind me for next season. Uh, good point, Sharon. You as your own person as well as your business and your special family have inspired many of us humble Zimbos. Hey, Donna. She's like my neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> That's you also cool. have your own journey, you're right. You know, it's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we all, we all big have career, a big career change and everything. It's great. Yeah. The courage to change when you uh when you just feel like it is is a massive thing. Um one of the things that we discussed as a panel a while ago, two weeks ago or so, we were talking about navigating change. That's when Jim Wall was on with us. So if you haven't seen that one, uh guys, go back into the history or go onto the podcast or the YouTube um channel. And you can find the one about navigating change, which is quite interesting. Um, I'm going to get on there soon. Uh, Sharon Hughes is saying, weren't you guys involved in the Bolo Air Club? Well done to you all. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, we were actually. Um, that <laughs> that was one of my big bravado moments in in um, in my persona. It was like I I saw an opportunity of uh, an, a gentleman's institution here in Bulawayo that was. It was 2009, um, just before the turn of, of our tourism industry, where we became um, dollarized. And that institution, which is goes back in history to you know Cecil John Rhodes's era, was on its knees. It was it almost yeah, it did. It had hourly rates on the rooms, and um, and God forbid the minute the the members of the Bulwark Club listening to me now, they weren't around you know when we were negotiating at this time to take on this lease um, and it was it was it, it was very sad um, anyway we 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 did take over the club and we negotiated a 14-year lease um, with the that that membership and the and the chairman that were there at the time and it was seen as like the revival and of Bulaware because it was suddenly this this old institution had investment in it and it became this shining star and um, I'll never forget our opening night we had the mayor there we closed off the streets and we had all the old day all those vintage cars around there and everyone came in the swinging 20s and I think and I don't even want to tell you how much money we spent on that opening night <laughs> it was a rocker and the minister of tourism was there to open it up um, and that was in yeah, uh, 2010 no, 2001. Sorry, 2010. Yes, 2010. I think so we, I can't remember if I was there or not. I I think you probably were because I, I mean, think so. there were thousands of people there, and it was mm. and it was it was a it was a big thing. And um, anyway, it was it was we gave it five years, and then um, I think it was five or six years, um, and it was it was just one of those decisions uh, wasn't a, a very happy divorce um, I'm not going to pretend it was anything else it was not a happy divorce but it you know it, it taught us that um, sometimes you overextend and you uh, you take your focus off of what's what's your true um, business your core business and we were in safaris and to have a, a hotel in, in downtown Bulawayo was uh, it, it took its toll on all of us and um, was the best thing we ever did was get out of it and um, you know what you, you cut your losses and you you understand in, in, in life that you don't always make the right decisions but it's how you deal with those decisions when they are in their, at their worst and at the bad times and how you pick yourself up and get out and carry on that's, that's absolutely um I have a I have a lot of fond memories of the Bolo Club. My dad was a, a long-standing member there, and we had many many dinners there, both before and when you guys were were running it. And uh, on top of that, I spent a few really good evenings just with Phil at the Bolo Club, where I I randomly because I just I do, that. yeah I I randomly do weird things where I like even in the big fours like I would be sitting at home at nine ten o'clock at night on uh, on a on a Wednesday night or a Tuesday night in Vic Falls and just get a bee in my bonnet and drive out to Hallengon in the middle of nowhere in the gorge and go down the gorge and explore in the middle of the night and come home at four o'clock in the morning and I'd do that by myself or if I could coax some poor unwilling friend or uh, someone to go with me I I would and yeah. the same thing happens to me in Bulawayo like I would sit in Bulawayo and on a random Monday or whatever just 
sitting there. I, I would literally have eaten dinner and be sitting in front of the TV watching series and just get a bee in my bonnet, jump in the car and bugger off to, to Metopus in the middle of the night. Yeah. Um, and a couple of times I did uh, uh, city missions where I climbed onto the roofs of buildings. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah. And I went, and I went you never got captured by the cops. Uh, you know, the thing is in Zim, if you do things with the right level of authority, no one asks questions. <laughs> you just uh, you just pretend like you're supposed to be there. Yeah, no, I'm just fixing some Zessa cable or whatever. Yeah, yeah I've been on the roof of Buluero Center a few times at night. I've been a lot of buildings where I'm not supposed to be on the roof. I've been on the roof. Were you um, on the roof of the club? No, I didn't get on the roof there. But I, I did go to, um, I just did randomly rock up there. Uh, one a couple of times with the tourist that was just happened to be with me passing through town and and once or twice on my own where i just rocked up and then uh phil met me at the door and i chatted to him and then he gave us a grand tour down the wine cellar all sorts of areas that you would never even know about if uh if, if he hadn't showed me you know yeah and yeah i've got a lot of good memories from there it was uh <laughs> one of those places and I, yeah. I even I even had my twenty first at the Boloe Club. I had a, a masked ball for my twenty first birthday at the Boloe Club in the main dining hall. Oh wow! Was that, that when we were there? Or? No, no, it's uh, that must have been two thousand and four, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Two thousand and five, oh. somewhere there. Yeah, because it was a you know the High Court is just up the road, right? So people yeah. go get married at the High Court, and we never had any fences you know it was like there's the street there's and, and here you are on the on the patio of, of the Bullock club and um and that's how we wanted it to be we wanted you to feel that you know it was this integration and that was part of why we took over the club to to separate the fact that it was a, a, a gentleman's only institution and open it up to as a boutique hotel and people would come i mean at first when we took over it was just gravel outside and we put these beautiful gardens in and, and they would walk down from the high court and have their photographs done in the gardens you know and you know you'd be sitting there sipping coffee on the side you know on the patio out there and, and yeah just watch the world go by and i think you know it's um i think that's what's what the beauty of Bulawayo was certainly that you could step out of a hotel like that downtown city of, of Bulawayo in an African city and be safe. Hmm. So that's, that's Bulawayo so, for you. So time is ticking on. Um, I just want to tell the, everybody watching, we um, got 20 minutes left. Um, there's a couple of things I want to cover and I've got a few questions that I want to go over. But if you've got questions and you want to say something or you've got comments or anything you want to add, please start throwing them in now so that I can make sure that I get to what you're saying and get to get to your questions and comments so that um, so that we can uh, make sure that we we don't neglect you and that we we get all the input from you guys. Um, Joanne Schultz is in the audience saying, hi, Sharon. It's been a long time since our days at Boris Street. How's life in Bulawayo? Paul, I think you should write that book. I will write that book. And uh, yeah, Joe's son was on the show a while back, Corey. And uh, oh, her, yeah. other, her other son is going to be on the show next season. Um, so that's great. Um, Hi, she's, she's reminding me of, of our, um, our poolside um, Friday night galas that, that Savannah used to swim in. And um, it's because Sab, Sab used to swim for Zimbabwe when she, from the age of nine and oh, wow. school. And then also, of course, in water polo. So those Friday nights by the Boris Street pool um, 
with our cooler boxes and yeah, in the rain and it was uh, that was a Friday night every Friday night and but yeah, those are oh, great memories and um, it's funny how you move on, you know, and and certain things are different and now we spend time watching Mitchell racing motorbikes and you know so it's yeah it's, it was great to to get that memory. Thanks, Joe. Um, right, so a cause that's both close to close to both of our hearts, uh, me on a micro scale and you on a slightly bigger scale. Um, talk to me about conservation. Tell me about uh, your initiatives that you have uh, founded and been involved in. Uh, one of them being the Mother Africa Trust. Um, then there's the Rhino Initi Protection Initiative Trust. Um, yeah, tell us about those, where they started. Tell us about uh, what you're trying to achieve with those things, especially for our international audience. I'm sure they'll be interested in what's happening on the conservation front in Zimbabwe and around. And you say we've only got 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, in a nutshell, then I'll try and encapsulate it. Um, you know, I think from my core of, of being a bush cat farm girl, you know, um, the, the sense of, of the environment is, is really strong. And um, when I... When Mitch was so sick as well, and in 2001, I realized as a mother looking after a sick child that um, I had opportunities and I had experiences and I had resources to help me with my sick child. But there were many other people in the Kamusha, in the community, um, who didn't have those same opportunities. And I felt like I, uh, it, was, uh, it was, it just hit me one day like, I have to help other people and I have to help other women. And I think that was when I, my first ideal of, of empowering women, it's very, very, very close to my heart. Women, um, you know, have always had like seen as, as the, the under, the underdogs in, in our society, especially as Zimbabweans, right? Um, very macho sort of thing. So, um, looking at, so I'm talking in circles now, but let me go back to, Developing the trust was essentially uh, to support those communities and those women around Amalinda. And then when we grew into Wangi, um, the focus became more wildlife. And um, and, and it's, a, it's quite a big balance trying to get community and wildlife in the right balance. But I my, my tendency now is to go a lot more to wildlife. And I think because our wildlife in this country is, um, or in, in the whole world, is being severely neglected and um, we are going through transitions in our in our globe that is um, quite frightening and if we don't if we don't harness that now you know we're going to be in trouble so so mother africa trust was developed um, with two arms one for community and one for conservation and so there's more community work that's done in, in the turpus and more conservation efforts in terms of anti-poaching and um, um you know, looking after those sort of those areas as a as a frontier between the community and the national park, um, and I think you know I get I get I get very passionate about it, and um, sometimes I've been accused of being too emotional about it, um, and yeah, I mean it's the Mother Africa Trust was probably my biggest achievement that I think has has really struck with me um, and I and that's why I want to I'm moving out of the business now um, and handing the marketing and, and, and that sort of stuff up to Savannah our daughter 
And and my my end game, I think, is going to be in working um, with the communities and the the conservation on, on a full time basis. Um, and that's that's my calling. That's where I, I really want to end up. That's amazing. Prop. That's the where the real fulfillment comes from at the end of the day yeah. for some people. I, I hear yeah. you. Like uh, for me, I've done a lot of uh, cool, enjoying, enjoyable things, and I've mentioned this before on previous episodes and stuff. Um, but being able to take the things that I love and enjoy and apply them to things that actually matter and create yeah. change and difference, like with the cyclone thing that we were discussing off camera. Yeah. Um, that's where real fulfillment comes and where your um, your skill sets marry with a, a real need and uh, create a, create an environment where you can really change things and, and make a difference. It's it's very special to be able to do that and to have that opportunity. But I know, you know, Paul, like we were discussing earlier about your work in, in Chimani Mani, you do it because you, you have this thing that pulls you. It, it actually pulls you to go and do it. And you don't do it for, I mean, you're doing it for the wrong reasons if it's for glory. And, sure. um, and you want recognition um, because that's not that's not sustainable. That's not going to keep you going back out there. Um, you know what you've done. You don't even talk about. You hardly even you hardly even. And that's where the book maybe comes in um, of, of those sort of experiences. But you know the the people that that you help and and the lives that you change and the wildlife that you you're trying to save. Um, it's a it's a it's a daily thing, and if you want to talk about conservation and, and wildlife in Zimbabwe right now, um, after the effects of COVID and, and this Corona pandemic, it's it's quite devastating. Um, and you know it's difficult because not everybody wants to put that out on social media, um, and it's um, the work that that is done is very much behind the scenes. No one really talks about the real heroes out there. You know the people that are actual. Um, making that difference. Mm. So, the, the boots on the ground. Yeah, the boots on the ground. Yeah. Um, Kevin so, Nicklin is uh, asking, any idea roughly how many rhinos are left in Zimbabwe now? So, Kevin, um, I can't, um, I, I don't actually have that information and I don't think it would be public knowledge. Um, when we, when I was chairman of Matopus Rhino Trust, um, you know, we were the numbers were disclosed to us, of course, um, by national parks. And again, it's not for for public um, knowledge. Um, but they, you know, we have a healthy population. Um, there's there's areas in uh, in Zimbabwe that have felt the ravages of of poaching and stuff, and and rhinos no longer exist in certain areas. Um, I think it's something that we need to keep a watch on all the time um, about those those specific beasts because they um they they're like gorillas you know they gorilla tracking and rhino tracking i think are up there on a par and i think we could do a lot more in um, conserving these rhinos and by putting a, a, a like like rwanda does you know rwanda you you you, you get a, a, a ticket or like a tag to go and see them and and it's sometimes 1500 us dollars that money all goes back into preserving that that wildlife and and that those gorillas and i think certainly in the future that's what we should be looking to do here in zim um put that price tag on on going on an adventure like that 
Um, I think people in Bulawayo will shoot me down right now because they'll be like, shit, no, we can't go out and see our rhinos anymore if we're going to have to pay for $300 to go and see them. So they'll probably be shot down in flames. But I think for an international tourist um, to support rhinos and, and the numbers and to make sure that they are getting um, the protection and you know the gene pool resuscitation that they need, um, I think it's, there needs to be a lot more money put into it. So yeah, that's, uh, uh, the, exact numbers, but I, I'm not allowed to. There definitely needs to be a two-tier system for locals versus uh, foreigners. Sorry to all you foreigners out there, uh, but uh, <laughs> the, the people who are born there need to be able to to see these things without having to uh, go abroad just to work for the money to get it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Good answer. Well done. <laughs> That was the, I got myself into some dodgy territory. <laughs> I wasn't going to go there. <laughs> um, so t I've got a couple of uh, just fun questions to end us off with. Um, mm -hmm. One of them, just to just to get a bit more idea of who you are as a person and uh, wind things down a little bit. One of the questions I ask everybody that uh, comes through is, uh, as if anybody who hasn't been with us before, you'll see this is called Soshing with Suntwe and my name there at the bottom of the corner says Suntwe, which is a Tonga word, which means hyena. And the, the reason I got that name, the long story short, is that if you hear me laugh hysterically when I'm really happy, I sound like a cackling hyena. And it's really, <laughs> really the type of sound that shouldn't be coming out of a grown man's mouth. But um, the, the, the other kayakers in the Tonga villages that live along the Zambezi River find it very entertaining. There's also other legends of why that name came in, but we won't go into those now. They're in the stories that I've written so far. And um, yeah, they, that's how I got my nickname is Hyena Suntwe. So the question I like to ask everybody that comes on here is what animal do you relate to most and why? Um, so I love I love the idea of a hyena because I think they're, they're incredibly intelligent animals and I just love their whole social interaction. Um, but I think for me, um, I think maybe because my my ultimate passion is lions, um, I feel I can I would like to identify with a lioness, um, and without sounding too bold and and um, overt, I think um, a lioness has 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 this really strong social bond. They are they are fiercely protective of their pride and of of, of their young. Um, they they have this womanhood, this, this, this thing that they work together in, in hunting and they're providers. Um, and I think if, if, that, if that could encapsulate me, that that's who I would like to identify with as a lioness, you know, a little stealth-like sometimes, a little cunning. Um, you never know where she's coming from, you know, and just straight away out of a bush, you know, there she'll be. But I think it's, um, yeah, a lioness is, is probably the, the ultimate um, animal species for me. That's a good answer. I like it. <laughs> um, <I'm laughing. laughs> Kevin, Kevin Nicklin's giving me shit in the, in the comments here. He's saying, Paul, you're a foreigner now. <laughs> <laughs> I've still got a Zim ID, mate. And he still sounds Zimbabwean. Oh, that'll never change. Yeah. That will never, never change. Where you come from? 
Um, what, uh, what question do you wish people would ask you more? Wow. Um, um, probably how does it really feel to be a woman in business? Um, I think, I think there's very little understanding about that. I think people, um, don't, don't really understand, um, how women measure up to men, you know, how, and how we are judged by men and by other women. And the, the, the jealousy that is shrouded in, in success with women, um, uh, not only jealousy, but maybe suspicion. And, um, um, you know, I think coming from a, a very manly environment, you know, Zimbabwe is, is very much a, a chauvinistic society. Um, being recognized as a woman, as an equal, um, and understanding what that means and the sacrifices that we as women have to go through to to be recognized as equal or, or even standing shoulder to shoulder with a man, I think is um, is something I would like to, I'd, I'd love more people to understand that it's it's not something that you get up every day and you're just this hard ass bitch, you know, <laughs> um, it's not, you know, we, I still, and I think coming later into my 50 or into my 50s now and, and you look back and you think, you know, I was, I was that lioness. I was that tenacious, go-getter bitch. Um, and I think when you get older, um, you realize how the sacrifices that you've made and and um, and how you've been kicked down. And I think to ask me that question of how it really feels as you know to be a woman in this society, I think that maybe more maybe more people should ask that one. Do, do you think, though, that uh, it's still like that? Is it, is, is it as hard for my generation? Was it more, was it, I, I think it was definitely harder for your generation, but do you think it still applies to my generation as much? Because, I, I, again, I'm a guy, so I have no experience of it. But um, from my own personal experience, I've never looked at, I, I mean, I've been surrounded by powerful women my whole life as well. So. Yeah. I, I've been raised around that. My mom owned businesses. I've had family members, female family members, all owned and run businesses and friends and all the rest of it. And I've grown up around people like you. And um, so maybe my personal experience is different to, to the norm. But my own personal experience is that I haven't really noticed it or I don't notice. I don't see a woman in business and think, oh, you're a, you're a chick. I just see what I see, really. And uh, sometimes... I just see a formidable foe here, or a formidable opponent, should I say? <laughs> so, so you're rare, and um, I don't think it's it's something that that um, is commonly accepted. Um, and and certainly, you know, out in, in the business front, if you're a woman and you're out at a dinner party, you know, you're going to get hit on because you're a woman. Oh, yeah, sure. You know? and, sure. And I think when you take yourself out of our level of society and go into the commercia and mm girl child and what opportunities do, does the girl child have sure. um, as opposed to you know uh, raising a son in a, in a village um, and I think that is the disparity um, so it's not just in yeah certainly in, in it's lesser to a lesser degree in, in your generation and to my kids generation mm. um, but I, I still think that it's very much seen as, as the, the man's side to to provide and um, and and I'll ask you the question now right now. Who's cooking your dinner? My dinner. 
Yeah. Well, I don't eat dinner on Wednesdays, but uh, <laughs> I. <laughs> but, uh, also, that was but, so but your but, wife. Uh, no, no, I cook most most of the time. I cook equally. Okay, so you so you are very rare. Yeah, we uh, we have a different lifestyle as well in England. It's like I, it's everything. Every everyone does everything. Takeouts on the way home, right? No, I don't eat takeaways. No, no. Honestly, I I cook as well. No, um, I mean that's awesome, and I think you know. Um, so so it's it's awesome, and I think when I was growing up, you know, my dad was. Uh, was was fundamental in, in raising my sister and I like that as being strong woman, capable woman. You go and you know you get out there and you you you, you are equal. There's no there's no special treatment for you. You are as good as a man. Hmm. That's that's perfect. That's that's how it should be. Um, okay, if you could master one skill that you don't have right now, what would that be? Diplomacy. <laughs> 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 I'm always told that I'm the most undiplomatic straight shooter. Um, uh, maybe it's part of my German background, but I, uh, I, it's something that I'm working on every single day of my life um, is diplomacy. Well, I, I didn't see that coming. Um, but <laughs> but, uh, but it's, it's, yeah, recognition of something like that is quite big of you. So that's the biggest step you've taken already. So if you already acknowledge that, uh, that diplomacy is something you need to work on, then I, I'm sure it's it's going to happen naturally. Uh, uh, no, it's, it's work. I'll tell you, it's work. Kevin said you brought out the hyena, Sharon. Soon to arrive. <laughs> <laughs> I see that now. That that was a small preview of what the the awful sound sounds like. And then the last question I have for you, because it's time to wrap up, is um, uh, what do you want to be remembered for, and what's the legacy you want to leave behind? Sure, I couldn't even have a sip of wine then. Um, <laughs> so say that again, what, what do I want to be remembered for? Yeah, what do you want to be remembered for and what is the legacy you want to leave behind? Well, I think there's there's two things. I think one, um, what my what I want my children to remember that um, that I was a mother first, you know, for them and that, that I, whatever I do, I do for them. And I think that goes for, for full as well. Um, what I what I want to be remembered for, I think, personally, I want to see what I can do to create a, or change what brands and barbie really means out there in the real world. Um, and I think maybe that comes from my marketing side of of, of my my mind. I I think. The perception of what Zimbabwe is one as a tourist destination, but also two as a um, as a country and what we've been through, and a, and a, a genuinely good place to be with people wanting to carry on living here. You know, our youth growing up and and finding Zimbabwe to be a place where they they want to carry on living, they want to keep giving back, and they want to be part of its growth. I think if I can help influence that in any way, I think. In, in any small way, I hope that's what I can do. Well, that's fabulous, and I mm -hmm. think you're already uh, you're already fulfilling that. So that's that's wonderful. Right, and on that note, I think it's time that we uh, we bid our farewells to everybody. And uh, 
we've pushed it to just over one hour. So we've managed to keep it uh, good and uh, to the time. I try not to make it go too long. Um, but Sharon, we've got a lot to talk about, especially on specific topics. I think we need to revisit at a later date and talk specifically about um, the, the topics about women in business and uh, empowerment in those areas and those sort of things and really dive deeper into the conservation side. This was a great general overview and a general uh, look at your career and your, um, your journey, but I would love to, to, to really drill down into some of those topics specifically with you at a later date if you would be happy to join us again. Yeah, I, I would love that. And I'm, I'm certainly going to be posting some questions to you panelists next week when it comes to your chat, because that's, that's interesting for me. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for joining us and taking the time out of your day. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure and wonderful to catch up and see you again. And, uh, yeah, take care and stay well. And to everybody watching, thank you for, for joining us and thank you for interacting. And uh, as always, thank you to the loyal uh, viewers who are here every week. It really means a lot and it uh, makes such a difference having you guys in the comments. So, yeah, see you all next week. Bye-bye.